Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. We're picking up for the second half of my conversation with Mark Mandelez, where we'll talk about organizational design, technology change, and much more. Enjoy! So do you think the rate of technological progress in defense systems has slowed down? After all, the Air Force is planning to extend the B-52's life past 2050, and I believe the last B-52H was built in 1962. What do you make of that? That's a hard problem. I haven't thought about data that would be appropriate to answering it, but I do have some feelings, a sense. I think that technological progress is accelerating, and this gives us a a situation in which there's a tremendous amount of accumulated knowledge. You see it in, in the estimates of how much digital information has been produced over the last 10 or 15 years and how it compares to the amount of knowledge or written in books over the last previous 500 or 600 years. So we've got a tremendous base in which to work, which leads to new research areas. I mean, we have to figure out how to index and access and gather and employ this vast amount of information. I know I suffer from it in my own very small way. I've filled up on my own laptop about 300 gigabytes of data. I don't have music on my laptop. I have (laughs) largely written material, PDFs, Word documents. There's a tremendous amount. And so we can expect from that that for the military, for those people concerned with developing new systems, we can expect that there are many revolutions in military affairs or transformations proceeding in parallel without our notice. That is, enabling technologies are being uh, developed. People are thinking about problems in a fundamental way, and that's being moved fairly rapidly into commercial practice or other venues to apply it. So we've got that as uh, that's general context to think about uh, for technological progress. On the other hand, we have an alternative view, which is that it's conceivable, or at least I conceive, that technological development can be slowed or stymied by poor interaction, inadequate support for thinkers and entrepreneurs, inappropriate decision and budgeting processes, inadequate um, enabling technologies, opportunity costs imposed by uh, Gresham's law of planning or other sunk costs. So there are lots of things to think about in which we do see rapid and advancing technological process and then uh, mediating forces that slow down and militate against the employment or development of new ideas and new technologies. That's very interesting. I I tend to agree with you that technological progress is speeding up. A lot of people point to the problem of, oh, well, when we look at transistor density, for example, Moore's Law is continuing, sure, 
but it's taking more and more researchers to do that. So you're increasing the number of researchers to get the same percent technological progress each year. So they're all like, okay, well, this could be a big problem, and this seems to be happening in all sorts of different areas. And we're moving to physical limits of certain technologies with transistors and things of that sort. Right. But I think the thing that you're bringing up that's a good point is that we have this combinatorial innovation. It's not just transistor density, right? The numbers of different types of parameters upon which we're measuring technological progress is ever expanding. And a lot of these products have more and more attributes. They're doing more things. And you can't just take these different attributes and try to mash them into one number. They're incommensurables. Right. And so some people say we're really in a a period where we've got lots of positive feedback loops operating, which is increasing the rate of development, increasing the numbers of areas of development. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes... I heard this analogy before where it's kind of like a building, right? Like sometimes you might be seeing for months or a year on end, there's all these people working on a building and they're trying to construct it and it's not going anywhere. It doesn't look like anything's being done. And then in a couple of days, all of a sudden a bunch of floors get put up and then nothing seems to be being done for a long time. And then all of a sudden the whole building goes up, right? And sometimes I kind of think of that as, well, when you're making these changes, it's they're, they're creating structural changes that could last 100 years or whatever it might be for humans to kind of really integrate around, around these concepts, and that can take time. And, you know, well, sure, we might be hitting physical limits with transistor density, for example, and in many other examples, we're always going to hit physical limitations because you can't scale anything physically infinitely, right? Like, it's going to hit real-world constraints. But I think the thing that I like to think about is, well, how about the intangibles, right? The innovation is really kind of doing something new, completely different. Innovation ideas can scale infinitely, so far as I know. And when you have these combinatorial innovations, the numbers of opportunities through which you can make these connections is also growing. That network is also scaling very greatly. And going in unanticipatable directions. Right. And that's uh, Karl Popper's point there. You've really done a great job of kind of taking some great thinkers over time and integrating their ideas into defense acquisition. And when I read some of that, it really kind of inspired me. So I just want to throw out a couple names. And can you just tell me why they might be important for us to think about in terms of defense? Uh, So first, Martin Landau. Well, Martin Landau was my favorite professor at University of California, Berkeley. I think he had one of the best critical minds of the 20th century for the social sciences. And I learned a tremendous amount from him. His life work on public administration was extremely important, I think, for today and will be important for years to come. He pointed out the problem of identification of errors as central task for any analyst uh, to identify errors and then remove them. And he applied that to bureaucracy. Whether we like it or not, the Defense Department is a bureaucracy. And his perspective on identifying errors, rectifying them, is useful, at least I found it useful, in a variety of, of topics that I've worked on over the last 35 years. 
Yeah, when I read Martin Landau, it seemed to me at least that he was applying like the von Neumann redundancy framework where he's like, okay, you don't want to streamline your organization completely compartmentalized in this hierarchy. That way you would not be able to identify an error, essentially. The redundancy in language, in organization, and many other things actually creates high reliability. Yes. His essay on redundancy in the Public Administration Review, I think it was in 1968, was an award winner. And he applied von Neumann's ideas uh, about redundancy as a theory of system reliability to public administration. So here's another name, Friedrich Hayek. Ha. <laughs> Nobel Prize winner in economic science. He was a close friend of my favorite philosopher, Karl Popper. And von Hayek approached the issue of planning, I think, in a way that was not only very pleasurable to read, but so thought-provoking. So I applied his notion of, uh, of the social use of knowledge, which I think he wrote about 1945, to the problem of acquisition. And uh, we talked about this earlier in the system design principle essay that I wrote about 2011. So I think von Hayek really identified the central and most important factors involved in designing a system to produce and use knowledge. And so I used that idea in advocating the system design paper. Yeah, for Hayek, I think that really is one of the kind of like emergent spontaneous order where, you know, things come from the bottom up as well as the top down. Uh, you have something that you said interesting here, I think kind of gets to it. The solution to the problem of organizing acquisition is to harness and direct the interactions of people and companies, each of whom possesses, more or less, only partial knowledge about the task at hand. So that's really the, the crucial point there. You have dispersed people. They all have different sets of endowments of knowledge that are specialized and many times they conflict with each other. And then the problem is, okay, how do you coordinate all those people? And you could try to aggregate the information, have a central decision maker that has costs and benefits, and he gives us some alternative ways of thinking about that. Well, right. Herbert Simon, another Nobel Prize winner in economic science, but a person who began as a political scientist, noted that Hayek's analysis of markets with respect to planning was a, not an ideological analysis. Von Hayek was looking at the way people think. And so it was quite compatible with the later work of cognitive psychologists like Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, Paul Slovic, Baruch Fischoff, where they're looking at the heuristics, the way people think. Von Hayek was applying a thoroughly modern and justifiable approach to thinking about planning and its limits that is quite appropriate to the way we organize, manage, and direct organizations today. So you brought up another name that I wanted to get to, Herbert Simon. Huh. Herbert Simon. I love Herbert Simon. Um, I actually met him twice. I think Simon was the greatest social scientist of the 20th century. He made 
first-rate contributions to many fields, psychology, artificial intelligence, political science, economics, sociology. He, he wrote some excellent essays on philosophy. And so Herbert Simon's first work is his dissertation and first 10, 15 years of his work before he moved into cognitive psychology uh, were on problems of organization, decision-making, and design. His little book that had three editions, Sciences of the Artificial, is just outstanding. In fact, I don't think I've read anything by Simon that has not proved useful to me at some later point in life. It may not have been useful to me at the time I was reading it, but it was always useful. I think I read his essay, Applying Information Technology to Organization Design, uh, 1973, maybe nine times, and each time I find something new in it. So uh, Simon, as brilliant as he was, is always useful to think about organization and the problems of defense. Charles Perrow. Charles Perrow is a sociologist, and he wrote a tremendously interesting book called Normal Accidents in uh, 1984, I think. His work has led to all sorts of interesting other avenues of work. But to describe his work on normal accidents, it had important implications for an area of organizational analysis called high reliability organizations. So Perot suggested that in highly technological organizations, which are designed to be interdependent, whose processes are designed to be inter interdependent, they are subject to certain kinds of errors in which small errors in one part of the organization or process can cascade through the organization and lead to spectacular, terrible kinds of catastrophes. The uh, Bhopal uh, chemical plant catastrophe is an example of the kind of normal accident that Perot talked about. Perot's work was picked up by another professor of mine from UC Berkeley, Todd Laporte. So Todd Laporte, in his research program called High Reliability Organizations, uh, noted that there are organizations that contribute to extraordinary performance in the use of complex technologies in very difficult task environments. And they have several attributes that are important. First, there's the high technical and interpersonal selection criteria for positions, merit criteria. Second, continual training and continual improvement efforts of those people who are working in the organization. Third, the attitude of mindfulness of the importance and necessity of identifying potential errors before they occur. Fourth, development of latent networks of expertise that are activated at the identification of an unanticipated event. And finally, alignment in organization structure of expertise and authority. Rear Admiral Dave Oliver, for example, describes the operation of these attributes in his description of nuclear submarine operations. Now, Oliver, of course, was a protege of Admiral Rickover. And his book, Against the Tide, is an exciting and interesting assessment and description of how Admiral Rickover forged, designed, developed, and shepherded these organizations 
uh, his organization on, on nuclear submarine design and operation to great successes. I think that's very interesting there what you just said about alignment of the expert and uh, an authority. <clears throat> and that really comes through in Admiral Oliver's great book on Rickover, who, you know, he had a great deal of technical insight and knowledge. And he was also the leader of his organization. He was able to corral a lot of decision rights to do what he thought was best. And his management technique that really comes out again and again through that book was just his focus on people. He met everybody that came in. And I would, again, recommend that book to anybody um, interested in not just the Navy and defense matters, but just management in general. There's a lot of great stories there. Kind of riding along that, who do you think wins in the bureaucratic conflict between the expert and the political authority? (laughs) Um, Well, what does win mean? In democracies like our own, the political authority decides. Experts have to like it or leave it. There are spectacular failures when political authority uh, does not respect or listen to and accept the ideas of experts. But then again, there are times when the experts are wrong. I think that's something that comes out of Elting Morrison kind of where he's kind of showing, hey, we would expect the expertise to be in the Navy, for example. But then when you had this innovation of continuous aim fire. Well, there's another kind of expertise, right? So you have two types of expertises that are kind of competing, but it really took the took a letter to Teddy Roosevelt, a political authority, to kind of override another another set of the experts who are more ingrained in the uh, in the traditional ways of doing things. Yes, yes, that just makes the point that experts sometimes are wrong about the implications or the way to derive implications from what they know. I recall that Admiral William D. Leahy billed himself as an expert in explosives, and he said before the uh, Trinity test that uh, nuclear explosives wouldn't work, that the nuclear bomb wouldn't work. And he said that as an expert in explosives of all types. So we have many cases where experts do not understand the implications of, of the work that they've read, the work that they've produced, the theories that they're employing, and so they may be wrong, and they have been wrong. I advocate tolerance of uh, these kinds of disagreements. And we have a political system, at least in America, we have a political system in which, over time, experts' view, despite certain catastrophes, can inform and guide public policy. So I want to just ask you about one last person who you've brought up a few times. Can you give us a little bit more about Karl Popper? Karl Popper, as I mentioned before, is uh, my favorite philosopher. He's Austrian, escaped Austria after uh, the the, uh, assumption of power of the National Socialists, went to New Zealand because he couldn't get into Great Britain at the time, uh, where he did his great work on um, poverty of historicism and the open society and its enemies. He was friendly with von Hayek, and I think von Hayek 
eased the process in, of allowing him into Great Britain uh, to emigrate and become a citizen after World War II, and he um, taught at the London School of Economics. So I, I just appreciate his way of thinking about the growth of knowledge. Growth of knowledge is central to so many things that the Defense Department does, and the unwillingness or inability of officials to understand the implications of Popper's emphasis on growth of knowledge, falsification, uh, research programs, impoverishes us. Uh, makes it more, more difficult for us to accomplish uh, practical ends and goals. So kind of riding along that, Karl Popper, as you said before, he does not think you can predict. He thinks it's logically impossible to predict the rate of technological change. And he really sees you know, science and technology as kind of like these historical disciplines as they've emerged. And that, for me, a little bit relates to something that you've talked about, which is path dependence analysis. Can you describe what path dependence analysis is? Path dependent analysis is the way economic historians, or at least some, Paul David in particular, have tried to apply history to the analysis of economic phenomena. Uh, I happen to like it very much. I, I found the language and ideas that Paul David wrote to be extremely exciting. And I think that path dependence and the kinds of problems it points to is very useful in describing and explaining how things happen in acquisition and in technology development. Path-dependent analysis is not a simple extrapolation of current events that can be easily overturned by transient events. Rather, it focuses on the many systemic and sometimes changing social and political factors that structure and constrain choices individuals make in organizations. So just in that general broad description, we see that there are many applications and implications for acquisition and acquisition-type decisions. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you really kind of broaden that scope of ideas to really kind of take into account not just what are the individual decisions, but really the institutional context around them, because the environment around you is really going to affect your path. For me, I think like initial conditions kind of matter a lot. And this idea has actually been used by the Department of Defense a lot, right? Like when we think about the planning process through PERT or Earned Value Management and the integrated baseline reviews, you're trying to create, you recognize, hey, I'm about to endeavor on a big project that's going to burn a lot of cash, and I need to create a plan that gets me from point A to point B most reliably in the best possible way, plan my, my actions well so I'm not wasting money. But I think one of the issues here that when we bring in this idea of the environment, the sociological, the technological things, they can't really be predicted but have major impacts. You see that, well, the initial conditions, the information relevant is not baked into the initial conditions. Many alternative futures and many alternative paths could have arise from those initial conditions. And that kind of comes from Edward Lorenz's famous 
work on the butterfly effect and sensitivity to initial conditions. Even if you do have a deterministic system, we find that because of resonances and uh, bifurcations and the like, you can't predict the future even in a deterministic system when you have any kind of nonlinearity. And that kind of comes out in this famous three-body problem. And so I like to think of these highly simplified physical models and the challenges of doing any kind of prediction there and then thinking, okay, now we're talking about an acquisition system with deep sociological factors and technology development. Sure, path dependence is important and we need to consider it, but that doesn't mean we can predict the future, predict the past. We can't rewind the system into its past and see what came of it. So in our management, we need to think about, okay, path dependence is important, but that doesn't mean that you can collect all the information and then predetermine your path and basically look at all of the potential paths out there and choose the optimal one. Those paths are kind of being made along the way. Yes. Um, I would say this. What path dependence does for me as an analyst is direct me to think about levels of analysis. And by focusing on levels of analysis, I clarify the types of evidence necessary to assess and evaluate various ideas and claims and, and statements. In doing so, one develops a much clearer and falsifiable diagnosis of a particular situation. So this is really important. The trick of thinking about consciously and deliberately uh, levels of analysis. Some problems and we see this every day in common political discourse. We use language and we use evidence and examples that are inappropriate. They don't speak to the kind of claim that we're addressing. So for path analysis, we have to talk about institutions. And to talk about institutions and institutional economics, the modern person to read is the late uh, Nobel Prize winning economic historian, Douglas North. That's Douglas with two S's at the end. Douglas North proposed uh, that there would be institutions and institutions uh, set the rules of the game, rules of behavior, rules of action for organizations and individuals to follow. The organizations themselves, of course, are collections of people who are working on a common or some set of goals. And individuals, of course, are individuals, uh, in individual units with their own means of cognition and decision making. Scaling up between these three levels of analysis, and these levels of analysis are one of many that one can employ to, to study and think and, and diagnose, these levels of analysis are especially useful for policy analysts of, of acquisition. We can look at the institutional rules, uh, checks and balances, and things like that, ideas like that, that affect the way organizations are, defense organizations are organized, are, are set up, 
and designed and function, and then we can look at the impacts of those rules, organizational rules, on how individuals think, decide, and, and their incentives for action. So this is really important. One of the obstacles to acquisition reform is that the uh, organizational rules and processes conflict in many ways with the goals of designing and developing effective technologies. The organizational budget process or the organizational promotion process, these processes provide incentives for individuals to behave in a certain way that may make it harder, more difficult, or stymie our development efforts. Off the top of my head, um, there's a non-defense example that I think is quite relevant. One of the factors that uh, influence promotion possibilities in academia is novelty. The problem with novelty is that it encourages social scientists, for example, to produce work on one topic and then leave that topic and move on to another one. And what you get then is the failure to accumulate knowledge, which should be the goal of the academic endeavor. In Defense Department, you have similar kinds of things where uh, one organization that does the um, finance and payroll contracting may refuse or make it difficult to hire somebody that is required or desired by a senior person to uh, do particular kinds of work. Instead, the personnel system may impose certain requirements that make it unlikely for the um, senior person to get, to hire the person he or she wants to do the particular work that they need to have done. Uh, so there are all these kinds of organizational processes that affect individual decision-making and incentives to act, and that is more easily examined from that framework of path dependence and levels of analysis if one is explicit about what one is doing. So a few minutes ago, you said something that was really interesting that I'd never heard of before, and it was quite remarkable, but I find it very true. So you said Gresham's Law of Programming, and in economics, Gresham's Law is that, well, bad money drives out good money. And you said Gresham's Law of Programming, which observes that programmed behavior will drive out unprogrammed behavior. So I tried to like Google search this term, and I couldn't find any results. You were the only result on that phrase. So I was wondering if you could explain where did you find this concept, and then what does that mean for defense acquisition? Well, I found it in the book James G. March and Herbert Simon wrote in uh, 1958, Organizations, which I think is the best text on organizations, organization theory uh, available today. So they cited work of industrial psychologists, uh, Lanzetta and Roby, back in 1956 on the organization of work teams. But March and Simon then went on to state what you just said, and the implications of that for defense organization is that if you need if some leader desires work on something uh, new, 
that is not consistent with normal processes of acquisition or normal processes of resource management or budgeting, uh, then one should create a specialized unit to do the work that one desires. The Defense Department, people in the Defense Department do that all the time. Secretary Rumsfeld created the Office of Force Transformation to have a group of people dedicated and specialized to the task of an overall view of the defense acquisition problem and then the design and development of various smaller, lower-cost technologies. I'm talking about less than a billion dollars for R&D costs. And it's a quite common phenomenon. It happens in civilian agencies. It happens in business. And, of course, as we mentioned earlier, it happens in, in the Defense Department. Well, that's interesting. When I read that phrase, I actually, from my mind, I got something a little bit different because I wasn't thinking of it along those terms. I didn't know that it came from Herb Simon. But what I was thinking, actually, and I want you to react to this, Gresham's Law of Programming, I was almost thinking of it, well, cost growth on old programs is driving out the new program. So, for example, in 1961, Robert McNamara was going around saying, you know, 40% of the defense budget is going to cover cost growth. So if you have this rationally managed program system, you say, okay, I've planned these programs and I'm going to transition to new generations. But then when you have cost growth and schedule delays, well, it's going to drive out the budget that would be otherwise allocated to the new program. So you're not getting new programs where you thought you would be because the old programs have experienced cost growth and you need to budget to them. What do you think about that? I think that's a reasonable way of thinking about it. I think it wasn't exactly what March and Simon were thinking about. You know, Gresham's law of planning is a metaphor, and it's a metaphor to Sir Thomas Gresham, who during uh, Elizabethan times was Chancellor of Exchequer, I believe, and he discovered that bad money drives out good. And so coins that were adulterated uh, had less silver in it, uh, remained in circulation. Coins that had 100% silver went out of circulation. People took them out. And so for March and Simon, the problem is if you, if a senior executive wants some thinking about a new topic or wants people to develop something new, take them out of the normal process of day-to-day activities and assign them that particular task. Insulate them from those other disturbances or distractions and allow them to work on topic X. Yeah, I think you see in the corporate world, at least, that there's a big move towards that where they don't want to impose their bureaucracies necessarily to get towards that disruptive innovation. And it has been for a while, over yeah. for years. This was even the same kind of concept, I think, that we had in the Department of Defense back in the 50s where you had strong technical services and bureaus in the Army and Navy. And then they said, okay, well, I want to do a new type of technology. And they would stand up a special project office. And then it turned out that these special program offices kind of became the regular course and they kind of more or less supplanted uh, the production and development knowledge from the technical services and the bureaus. So staying with Herb Simon, What is uncertainty absorption? Well, Gresham's law of planning, 
uncertainty absorption, and other terms uh, like that, gold displacement, are ways of talking about generic kinds of errors that occur in organizations. So uncertainty absorption is the act of summarizing raw information to communicate it further in the organization. What it means in practice is it's a way of manipulating information. Information uh, manipulation is ubiquitous in organizations, public and private, conscious, and it's either conscious or unintended. But what happens when one edits or summarizes information, moves it up over many levels of an organization, is that the end result may be, the, the message at the end may be entirely different from the message as intended. When I worked at the General Accounting Office in the mid-80s, somebody was passing around a, a humorous sheet describing uncertainty absorption. And it began with the analyst saying that a particular idea is terrible. I remember the sheet didn't use the word terrible, but it used another word that would be would force Eric to uh, to delete it. Um, but anyway, so uh, it moved up through about 20 channels and it arrived at the Comptroller General of the U.S. and the message was this idea is fine fertilizer and it will cause the organization to grow. And that's uncertainty absorption. The constant editing as an idea or communication moves up the channel of an organization and it provides uh, an incorrect, incomplete uh, assessment to the senior decision makers. Now, w one of the things to think about with respect to these kinds of errors, uncertainty, absorption, and so on, is that each one has its own means of countering. So one way of countering uncertainty absorption is that the senior executive creates alternative channels of communication. Neustadt, in his book on presidency, described uh, Franklin Roosevelt doing that, where he had he had assigned tasks to many different individuals or small groups and would not tell each individual or group what he asked for, would aggregate the information himself and use the various perspectives to fine-tune or propose a particular policy. Now, efficiency experts would say, well, you've multiplied, uh, you've got a lot of redundancy here. But Roosevelt would answer, but this redundancy allows me to have a correct and accurate view of what's actually happening down below in, in my bureaucracy, and I need it because I want this program to work or this idea to work. Yeah, that reminds me, this uh, multiple channels idea. I was reading a uh, congressional uh, testimony from John Boyd, and they were asking him to uh, comment basically on the recent reorganization from uh, Goldwater Nichols, where they kind of streamlined the organiza uh, some of the channels of information. And he was basically saying, hey, I don't agree with this. I think there needs to be many channels of information coming through many ways, many dispersed uh, types of ideas, 
just so that you, again, get that redundancy. He didn't frame it that way, and I didn't really understand what he meant at the time until I started reading some of these things from Landau, Simon, and the like. And von Neumann. And von Neumann. You know, with uncertainty absorption, for me at least, it kind of gets back a little bit to Hayek as well because for uncertainty absorption, well, you're kind of saying, well, there's kind of like the telephone effect where as you kind of go through different people, the information gets corrupted. But for me, like, I like to think about it in a little different way where I say, okay, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's just say everybody in the organization is perfect at transmitting the information. But the problem is when you're aggregating information at higher and higher levels, you necessarily have to abstract from the minor differences of time and place, which is kind of like Hayek's point. You can't aggregate all of these special things about, well, what is the specific machine tool supposed to be doing as opposed to just classifying it as quantities of machine tools. And these are very important for the actual decision makers. So when I think of uncertainty absorption, I'm thinking like, okay, you got to move information from the bottom to the top so that the people at the top can set good policy that's holistic and has an accurate view of the entire situation. But necessarily, you have to abstract from many minor differences that are important. And as you go through those layers, you're losing a lot of that information. And then what you see at the top might not necessarily be reflective of what needs to be happening. Excellent way of thinking about it. This is a form, an example of unintended information manipulation. Effects are the same. Effects are that the senior executive is less likely to be able to generate appropriate policy or appropriate judgments, assessments, uh, because of the editing that was unintended but removed critical pieces of perspective from the report. So let's shift gears a little bit here. Can you tell me what is the third offset strategy and what are some problems associated with it? The third offset was presented under Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel, Hagel's uh, administration uh, in 2014. And it's a set of efforts to maintain American military superiority over current and potential foes by developing new operational concepts and technologies. So Hegel was basing his offset strategy on the successes of the previous two. In the first, President Dwight Eisenhower proposed a program to build U.S. nuclear forces to deter and counter the Soviet Union's conventional force numerical superiority. Then uh, in the second offset, the late now the late the Secretary of Defense, Harold Brown, guided the second offset in which he proposed and supported technologies like stealth, precision-guided munitions, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance systems, all of which were used to counter the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact's improving military capabilities and numerical superiority forces in Central Europe. The current third offset technologies are both exciting and ambitious, uh, and many observers have uh, been really interested in them. Over the years, I surveyed more than 20 articles uh, and essays about the third offset, and of these, all of them assume that technical goals are achievable and that higher technical performance is equivalent to higher operational performance. So 
those are the two weaknesses of the current third offset. So when programs run into some trouble, they often go into a phase called pre-planned product improvements. Can you describe what that is? Well, sure. I believe it originated around uh, 1981. I read a couple of uh, GAO reports uh, about the 1981 effort. It required incremental requirements uh, that were updated as knowledge grew. It required system designs to accept upgrades and communication with industry about new ideas for upgrades and finally upfront funding for upgrades. So aside from the grammatical problem that I have with it, what is pre-planned product improvements, something that you do before you do the planning? I don't know. Uh, but what the planned product improvement effort is very complementary to the system design principles that we talked about earlier today. And unfortunately, this process didn't work effectively. I think it didn't work effectively because the level of technology we were operating with back then did not permit it. But now, with the ideas of open architecture, standard interfaces, and modular design, it's much easier to think about incremental requirements changing with the growth of knowledge. It's more easy to think about designing the system consciously to accept upgrades because you can do so if you have modular design and standard interfaces and open architecture. And it's more easy to talk, think about talking with industry about the technical problems we're trying to solve in the field if there's a normal process of communication with them on these short-duration development programs. Program managers always find upfront funding from Congress to be useful. Yeah, I think that's interesting what you said there about pre-planned product improvement, that it is relatively a sound idea from the systems design principle, because again, it kind of necessitates that open architecture and then that incremental or rapid kind of um, evolution of the components that you can put on there and upgrade the system. But I think some of the problem that we've seen recently is that, well, we expect and we fund a program to basically go through development in one big cycle and then make it into production. But then when you realize problems, then you start doing this incremental kind of upgrade. And I think we see that with F-35, the continuous capabilities, development and delivery. But not because that was planned, but because things had gone wrong before, and now they need to kind of readjust what they were doing. It kind of reminds me that, well, you might have saved a lot of costs and a lot of time if you had planned for that up front that, hey, I'm going to get into one of these uh, types of situations where I want to use some kind of architecture that I can upgrade pretty quickly there. And that, again, as you said, it aligns more with how industry might want to be doing things. They don't really want to set aside 10 years and $10 billion to go do something. They want to be more rapid and be able to compete a little bit more on smaller pieces as they go along. So can you tell me a little bit about the role of history in defense acquisition and what needs to be written that hasn't yet been written? Well, that's a good question. It strikes me that there should be a role for history in defense acquisition. 
here's a case where we have conflicts of interest and conflicts of incentives. Executives have an interest in understanding whether certain designs for their organizations that do development have flaws. Historians have incentives to spend the time to collect the data, to write the data up in a narrative that is clear, interesting, and thought-provoking. Political executives have a need for answers quickly. Historians want to take the appropriate amount of time to do the work properly, which can take years. So we have immediate conflict over how to do this kind of work, and indeed, whether the kind of work political executives would want should be done by historians. It seems to me that the military historians have to collect data and information about the daily activities of military staffs, headquarters staffs, and things of that sort. But the kinds of things that are important for defense acquisition have to do with individual programs that are highly classified, which is another problem for the historians, highly classified and are unique. And how would you do that? Well, it seems to me that for exciting new technologies, the research has to be team-oriented and it has to be interdisciplinary. So yes, people trained in the use and the art of archival research are necessary for this kind of work. But also, people who understand the physical properties of the systems being designed are necessary for this kind of work. People who understand the political and organizational activities conducted by program managers, people who understand design of organizations, for example, the necessity sometimes of having multiple lines of development, they're also necessary to understand how these programs are functioning and to assess and evaluate the outcomes of the program's work. Military historians, I love them. Tremendous people, smart, engaging, but they don't necessarily have the experience and training to do this by themselves. So the role for history and defense acquisition is really a matter of interdisciplinary and team-oriented research, larger kinds of projects than history offices normally, uh, federal military history offices uh, normally operate in. Now, I should note that I was a member of such an interdisciplinary team when I was a deputy on the Command and Control Task Force at the Gulf War Air Power Survey. My team produced a 500-page document with over a 1,000 footnotes for that document. But we were interdisciplinary. We used historical expertise, but we also employed other ways of looking at the experience we were assessing and describing. Yeah, I think project histories are just this really important area. And like you say, you don't necessarily have to get into classified information about specific technologies to understand a lot of the relationships 
that the program manager has to mix with the contractor, with the rest of the bureaucracy, and a lot of the trade-offs and decision-making that needs to be done. It was interesting. I saw in 2013, the International Journal of Project Management pointed out that there was a shortage of these types of project histories. And it was kind of a, an issue for them. And I was thinking about it a little bit about, well, what is the benefit of project histories for acquisition? And, you know, your books, you have done a great job. And there's a, there's a few other, like, previous guests, Rick Whittle. I highly recommend Harvey Sapolsky's book on the fleet ballistic missile. And he wrote a really excellent book that was broad scope, and it had just tons of insights come out of it. So I'll list five key elements to a healthy acquisition culture that I think project histories can really help with. And Sylvain Lenfle, a project management professor, he kind of said, well, one thing about project histories that he told me is, well, the benefit is for managers and people in the system to have reflection in action. So here are some elements I think are interesting. First, a professional embrace of uncertainty. Second, Project histories promote a regard for the stakeholders, which in these big defense programs, there's many of. An appreciation of requirement and contract flexibility. Excavating forgotten practices. Uh, one of these that often comes in and out is parallel development paths and stuff like that. Sometimes we like them, sometimes we don't. But sometimes we forget about things, and through project histories, we can think about, oh, this situation this practice could apply here. And the last one, defining the domain of validity for existing practices. What do you think about those? Well, I think those are all great guidelines. Um, I think we can put the RAND acquisition work, Burton Klein, we've talked about them earlier. We can put that work squarely in with the guidelines. Um, we could put in the work of Alexander... Um, Arthur Alexander? Yes, Arthur Alexander. Yeah, great. On um, Soviet. On Soviet mm -hmm. decision-making in, in acquisition programs. So it's generalizable. And I'm sure that uh, the professor you mentioned intended them to be uh, generalizable. I think they are. Mark Mandelis, thank you for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thank you very much, Eric. It's a pleasure. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.